Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law, and we thank you for joining us this evening. The year 2020 is now behind us, and like all previous years, 2021 had some highs and some lows. Although the COVID-19 vaccine became widely available in 2021, the global pandemic and the COVID-19 variants continue to disrupt all aspects of our society and our communities. This country's racial reckoning continued, but with efforts by some to stem the progress and push for the deliberate ignoring of history. And our legal and political leaders continue to try to shape the future with some resorting to means antithetical to democracy. As we settle into the new year, we want to take some time during this show to reflect on 2021 and look forward to the year ahead. We have joining us for this discussion, Professor Don Corbett, constitutional law professor at NCCU School of Law, and Dr. Henry McCoy, economist and professor in the NCCU School of Business. Thank you both for joining us yet again. Thank you, great to be here. Thank you for having me, I appreciate it. All right, so we're gonna first start with kind of reflecting on the events and, and top stories from 2021. And Don, the first major event that happened last year was of course the January 6th insurrection. So we're gonna start with you and have you share your thoughts about the event and uh, then kind of dialogue about what we think the future holds as far as people being held accountable for that insurrection. Sure, and, and once again, thank you for allowing me to participate. Uh, we're, we're taping on a, win, on a Wednesday, uh, I think tomorrow is actually the one-year anniversary of the insurrection in the Capitol. And, and for people who, for whatever reason, may not know about this, this is supporters of, of former President Donald Trump who stormed the Capitol in an attempt to stop the congressional certification, uh, which was the last official act before Joe Biden became president. And I think five people ended up dying as a result of the insurrection, either on the day or in the aftermath of, of the riot. So on television initially, it looked very much like a spontaneous event. Uh, we've since found out that, that from the formation of the January 6th commission to investigate the day, that there looks to have been a pretty concerted effort from what looks like the highest levels of government to try to keep Trump in office. It had actually been in play for several weeks prior to the insurrection itself. Uh, so that story is still unfolding and it's given this, this uh, date of January 6th additional ongoing life. You know, interestingly, I remember watching it on TV and a lot of the people in the aftermath that day said, well, this is not who we are as a country, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it kind of sort of is not true to say that. There've been many times throughout history when the country's been on the cusp of of substantive change for the better, especially for people who have been historically marginalized. And there's been pushback 
to those efforts that on occasion has manifested itself in violence. You can go all the way back to Reconstruction, the civil rights movement, and I think more recently, the aftermath of, of the protests stemming from the death of George Floyd. So, so I think in many ways, what we saw on January 6th was a continuation of what we've seen in history several times. And, and really interestingly, uh, since then, there's been almost like a second kind of insurrection and, and I, I call it a factual insurrection, where you've seen this concerted effort from conservative media outlets, Republicans, to paint this as something really different from what it was. So, so you're hearing a lot of, well, it was actually something that the liberals are just exaggerating, or it wasn't that bad, or it was just a tourist visit, it was Antifa, it was Black Lives Matter people, it was the FBI, it was everybody except like Trump and his supporters. And, and I think that's consistent with what we've seen with regard to misinformation and disinformation that's used to, to mislead and, and manipulate folk. And that that is also still ongoing. And, and you know, it's kind of a, a brief sidebar. I think it's illustrative of the larger problem that we seem to be having that stems from our real collective lack of faith, seemingly, in, in our institutions, whether they're schools or scientific institutions or media or government. We just have significant factions of the country that feel like they can't be trusted. And I, and I think that makes some of those folk vulnerable to these really wild conspiracy theories. And when you take that and it, and it's, it seems like everything has been exacerbated because people are struggling because of the pandemic and economic insecurity. And, and we just have this really unique powder keg of stuff going on. And it didn't stop just with January the 6th. So, and, and I'll say one last thing and then, and then I'll be quiet. It hasn't been in the news as much, but I think in the aftermath of the insurrection, one of the things that's happening is the criminal prosecutions that have been happening for the people who stormed the Capitol. There have been over 700 arrests. Uh, there have been overwhelmingly white defendants. And a lot of these folk have entered into plea bargain deals. But I think it's worth noting that some of these pleas, at least for me, have felt exceptionally generous, like house arrest maybe a couple of years of probation, community service, et cetera, that couldn't happen without the okay of the prosecutors prosecuting the cases and the judges on the bench. So it feels like you have people who are really in charge of, of, of seeing that justice is done, whatever that looks like. And it feels like there are people who are entrusted with that that seem a little bit skeptical of the actions of those folk and, and have really allowed them to avoid jail time. Now, that's not, of course, everybody didn't do the same thing. I'm sure that many of these folk were first-time offenders, didn't have criminal records, which certainly would be mitigating factors. And you do have some judges that are handing down stiffer punishments. But I continually think about what would have happened uh, to the people who have been charged had they been Black, had they been Brown, had they been gay, and they had stormed the Capitol in that way. Would we see uh, so much deference, I think, in the, in the prosecution process with regard to how some of this stuff shakes out? So when it finally does shake out, it'll be interesting to see who's held accountable and, and who's not. And, and it would be nice to be pleasantly surprised by some of those things, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. Well, you know, Don, I, I thank you for that, uh, that, that summary and the uh, narrative uh, attached uh, to it. Let me just ask, though, you had four years of uh, Donald Trump in office. And uh, during three of those years, he was, well, probably three and a half of those years, he was placing people in positions of power 
uh, throughout the uh, judicial uh, process, the uh, law enforcement uh, process, uh, the military, uh, and other agencies of, uh, of the government, uh, do you think that there was an anticipation during this uh, administration prior to uh, the uh, events of, uh, from November on when he lost the election, that there would be an effort to uh, uh, take over the government in the manner that uh, we saw exhibited on, uh, on January 6th? The short answer to your question is I think that's a yes, okay? And I think you can take that back to if we the, the Russian investigation with and the and and his conversations with uh, the gentleman who leads the government in the Ukraine that seems like about a hundred years ago now when we had that led to the first impeachment proceeding, but his concern there was Joe Biden. He was worried that Biden was the person that could beat him. And he even then was looking for ways and angles to try to, to, to mitigate the prospect of facing Biden in an election, uh, all in the idea or the, the with the thought process of staying in power. And, and one of the things, Professor Joyner, I think is that's a little bit disconcerting about what's happened since the, the physical insurrection of the Capitol has been now, you can see at the local and state level, how many officials have been placed in the position uh, of being able to navigate around results of elections that they find undesirable. And many of those folk are true believers with regard to the thought process that the Trump election or the election was stolen from Trump in the beginning. So if in the event he does make it to 2024 and we see the same kind of tightness in the race and in some of these battleground states, you may have you know, people who are more willing to do what people in Georgia and Pennsylvania would not do for Trump uh, last time around. So I do think it's part of an ongoing effort. You know, the question is, you know, was it, was it intentional? Were, I think the answer is yes. Was it super competent? You know, maybe not, but this could have been a trial run for the next time around. And, and we'll just have to kind of see how that shakes out. Uh, Henry, did you have any um, thoughts, quick thoughts that you wanted to share about the the insurrection from, from your vantage point? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think it certainly, um, you know, following Professor Corbett certainly speaks to this idea of, of whenever there is um, change that, that um, you know, some folks don't agree with that, you know, you see measures of um, trying to respond to that. And, uh, you know, I certainly think about, um, you know, here in North Carolina, you know, 1898. I mean, you know, this kind of coup d'etat in Wilmington and things of that nature. And it, it brings up, it reminds me of those times. And so, you know, I, and I think that's particularly reflective, um, you know, you know, at this time, whenever we are, you know, talking about, um, you know, uh, or have been talking about racial reconciliation and, and, and changing times and, and you know, this, this kind of new era we're moving into. So, so you know, January 6th is um, certainly a reminder that, um, you know, as they say, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so notwithstanding the efforts of the insurrectionists, we had an inauguration. And so that took place on January 20th, um, historic um, inauguration. So we had Joe Biden, who was sworn in as the 46th president, the oldest person to serve. So he was 78 at the time. He's now 79. And then, of course, Kamala Harris, who was sworn in 
as the 49th vice president. And she, of course, made history becoming the first woman, the first African-American, the first person of South Asian descent to be sworn into that position. Uh, There was also a a notable uh, history making at the inauguration. And I wanted to mention Amanda Gorman, who was 22 when she was the youngest inaugural poet in US history. And she has just released a book called Call Us What What We Carry. And so wanna encourage our listeners to check that book out. Um, but as far as Harris, uh, so, you know, she is the first in many ways, as as I noted, uh, the first woman, first African-American, first South Asian to serve as vice president. When she was announced as Biden's running mate, um, you know, there were stories about the type of media coverage that she garnered versus the media coverage that we saw from other people who were named as running mates and and all of the other vice presidents, for the most part, um, white men. Uh, We have seen the media coverage that she has been subjected to during her time as vice president this past year being different when you compare it to the media coverage of other vice presidents. And this kind of goes to Don's point about the treatment of those that participated in the January 6th insurrection um, in terms of the plea deals, in terms of the generosity that's being shown, in terms of the types of of sentences that they've been given. And when we look at Kamala Harris being a woman of color, and we look at the types of stories that we're seeing in the media, we can't help but notice that she is being treated very harshly um, or in a way much harsher than her white counterparts in years past. Uh, there are stories that focus that you know on very trivial matters that have remarkably been given a lot of weight, particularly in the conservative circles. So I'm sure folks might remember she was criticized because she doesn't use Bluetooth headphones. She uses wired you know, headphones because she's concerned about it being a security risk. And what's so ironic is um, Hillary Clinton, when she was Secretary of State, was hammered because of you know, her having government emails on her personal email server, um, purchasing cookware when she was in Paris and the amount that she was spending on her personal cookware that she spent with her personal dollars during a personal outing while she was in Paris. Um, Also, much more emphasis on the turnover that she's having with her staffers. And not that that's not a valid news story, but when you look at how other vice presidents have been treated in the media, you can't help but see that there's a double standard and that she's being treated in a, in a particular way. Um, from my view, and I'd like to get your all's thoughts as well, um, of course, there are a, a couple of things that, that are going on. One, she is a woman, she is a person of color, and we know that there's always a double, double standard because this is a country that is um, built on racism built on sexism. And when you have people in power who do not fit the white male kind of paradigm, you oftentimes see them being treated differently. 
the other thing that I think is going on is with Joe Biden being the oldest person to serve as president, he is now 79, there are questions about whether he will run for a second term. And it's not uncommon for the person who is serving as vice president to run for president if the sitting president does not run for re-election. Either they choose not to or they're not able to. And so Harris being the um, sitting vice president, she is, of course, in a position where she will potentially run for president if Joe Biden does not. And so um, I think a lot of the criticism that she's getting, particularly from the conservative media, is also trying to set the stage for her not to be a strong candidate in the event she decides to run for that, in the event Joe Biden decides not to run and she does decide to run for president in 2024. So we're going to have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'd like to get uh, the impressions of our guest and also my co-host, um, Irv, on Kamala Harris's inaugural um, time, historic making time as vice president, and just get your impressions of um, what this year for her has been like, why it is, and what we might see in the future. So you're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM, and we're talking this hour about the 2021 year in review. We'll also be talking about this upcoming year. We have as our guests here with us in our Zoom studio, Professor Don Corbett, constitutional law professor at NCCU School of Law, and Dr. Henry McCoy, economist and professor in the NCCU School of Business. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Good evening. My name is Olivia Andrews, and I am a current senior here at North Carolina Central University, and this is your Community Information Spotlight. We will be highlighting domestic violence. October was Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and it is important to acknowledge and draw attention to unspeakable acts of victims and survivors to continue being a voice and raise awareness to stop the violence. This violence epidemic affects individuals around the world every day and does not discriminate regardless of age, gender, or race. According to the NCCADV, on average, nearly 20 people per minute are physically abused by an intimate partner in the United States. During one year, this equates to more than 10 million people. If you or a loved one are experiencing any form of violence, reach out to the Durham Crisis Response Center here in North Carolina at 919-403-6562 or at their email at crisisline at durhamcrisisresponse.org. For anonymous confidential help available 24-7, call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233 or 1-800-787-7233. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. 
I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with Professor Don Corbett, constitutional law professor at NCCU School of Law and Dr. Henry McCoy, professor in the NCCU School of Business. And we've been talking about this year in review. Um, so right before the break, I was sharing my initial thoughts on Kamala Harris in her historic position as Vice President of the United States. And Henry, let's start with you. Do you have any, any thoughts or insights that you wanna share? Yeah, well, I think that uh, it certainly is telling, but again, this is one of those things that we see over and over again. Um, you know, when uh, a black person, a uh, uh, um, you know, person of color, a, a female, I mean, when, when those individuals get placed in position of power, then all kind of different um, things start swirling around them. I, I'm, I'm kind of reflecting on for anybody who saw the um, the Oprah interview with um, um, you know Meghan Markle and uh, and and, um, and Prince Harry. I mean the 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 idea of how um, these institutions that are supposedly evolving and 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 moving forth in the, in this century just fall back to the to the kind of old tropes of of how we we operate. And so uh, you know I, I think that with, with Vice President Harris, we're seeing that right. I mean we're seeing this idea, as you mentioned, of um, the possibility that she could be, um, you know, a, 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 a in contention for the presidency uh, in the next election, and how do you, you know, slowly kind of build doubt and and uh, and, and and create this kind of narrative around her that that makes her or that tries to make her weak. And so, I think from that standpoint, you know, again, we're seeing the, the same um, tactics, the same strategies that we've always seen, and, and certainly when it comes to the intersectionalities of race and gender. Uh, it's nothing new, and uh, and so I, I think um, you know Vice President Harris is certainly becoming a uh, kind of a poster child for for the things that we're still dealing with these days. Don, any thoughts? I I can't add a whole lot to what's already been said. I, I think that her in in many ways she has already been successful and will continue to be successful merely because of her presence on the stage. I mean she's. The symbolism and representation still matters a great deal. And I remember when uh, the inauguration occurred, and I remember seeing families interviewed on like CNN, MSNBC, et cetera. And, and I remember hearing several middle school age girls, uh, some Blacks and some Latinos saying, hey, she looks like me. Maybe that's something I can aspire to at some point in time. So whenever you have that kind of representation, it forces people to think uh, beyond what negative stereotypes also exist. And by removing ceilings from what kids think they can do and think they can be, I think that really continues to matter. Uh, sadly, you know, her performance has been magnified, at least in part because everything is magnified, right? Once upon a time, a thousand years ago, there were maybe four channels you had on TV and those went off at two in the morning. And now at the advent of so many continual sources of information and with many of the sources having political agendas, everything is blown up. So if there are missteps or perceived missteps, then you're certainly going to hear a lot more about them. I think to, you know, go back to what we talked about a little bit earlier, she, much like President Obama, looks like the change that people are uncomfortable with. So I think the narrative that's been developed around her is to delegitimize her with the hope that we won't see that kind of change occur. And I, I do think that, I mean, you know, in, in that same um, vein, um, of course, here we are still dealing with the the, the, the pandemic, right, and, and and what's going on with that. But reality is that I mean, the you know the, the biggest pandemic is racism, and so it, that continues on, and it, it's it's long standing and it's, it's global, and 
and it keeps manifesting itself in all kinds of ways. And so, uh, you know, I think that's something that, that we can't forget um, on a daily basis. And I think that's a, a good segue into our discussion of the Derek Chauvin trial that was um, based on the murder of George Floyd, which happened in 2020, the summer of 2020. And Irv, if you had any final thoughts you wanted to share about Vice President Harris, feel free, and then you can take us into the discussion about um, that murder trial, uh, the conviction, and also where we are with police reform. Well, you know, and and I think uh, Dr. McCoy's comments about uh, racism uh, being at the center of uh, all of this is uh, certainly appropriate, and uh, and I, I and I wonder with respect to uh, Vice President, the Vice President, whether she is allowing herself to be misused in the position that, uh, that she is in, or whether she, her strategy has not worked out to provide a more positive uh, impression of her as a leader. Uh, and uh, I, I note the uh, departure of many members of her staff uh, here in the first year of her administ administration, which, uh, seems bad, uh, it looks bad. And, uh, and, and, and when you have people who are, uh, have you under a microscope and they're looking for things to hit you with, uh, how do you allow these kind of things uh, to, uh, to occur? And uh, certainly there are a lot of ceremonial roles and actions and activities in which she could be uh, involved that would uh, lift up her profile rather than standing behind uh, Biden at every uh, press conference as if uh, she is waiting for him to fall. And uh, so I, you know, I'm, I'm concerned and I don't know where the uh, uh, fault points are uh, with respect uh, to her, whether it is with her, her handlers, or the democratic process or the Biden team, because uh, she is not uh, the star in this, uh, in this show and is directed in large part by, by others. But uh, you know, it causes some concern. And then whether racism is such now that it is going to be impractical or impossible for another African-American to emerge as uh, as a viable presidential candidate going into uh, 2024, so I just throw those 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 thoughts out uh, in uh, in that regard. Uh, going further with uh, this notion of, of racism, uh, the uh, uh, certainly one vivid example of uh, this racism is the uh, George Floyd uh, murder. Uh, that occurred in uh, Minneapolis in uh, May of uh, 2020. And uh, it resulted in a guilty verdict uh, for uh, Derek Chauvin on uh, three counts of, uh, of felony uh, wrongful uh, death and a lengthy prison sentence that he received. And then subsequent to that, there were other killings of African-Americans by uh, police officials and wannabe police officials 
resulting in uh, guilty verdicts. And, uh, and with that, there was some hope, or there is some hope uh, that uh, out in the boondock, uh, there is some uh, level of fairness uh, and justice uh, that uh, emerges from these, uh, these killings, unlike uh, what occurred uh, years ago, uh, where you didn't even get a prosecution. Uh, so it's encouraging in a sense, uh, but then by the same token, there was an effort after the uh, George Floyd case to promote this uh, George Floyd uh, Police Accountability Act uh, in Congress, which dealt with, among other things, this notion of qualified uh, immunity. And uh, that is uh, now under somebody's table. Uh, no one is talking about that anymore in positions of power. Uh, of course, we are concerned about it, and we raise it from time to time. Uh, but when we look at what's going on in the uh, Senate, uh, there is an absence of conversations about it. Uh, there are not uh, massive demonstrations or push from progressives around the uh, country to promote uh, that uh, that idea. And uh, while <clears throat> utilizing some public relation ploys uh, around the country by uh, police departments and uh, uh, city uh, governments, uh, there aren't any appreciable changes in uh, the uh, structure or accountability of uh, police departments. So this is an issue that has seemingly uh, died on the stem. And uh, we're waiting to see if uh, the next event, which is sure to happen, is going to revive the uh, uh, outrage uh, that people had when they uh, looked at the uh, death of uh, George Floyd. We also, and I, I, I must uh, comment on this, is that uh, in Minnesota, uh, you had two different uh, uh, cases of police officers, all prosecuted by an African-American uh, who was the uh, state attorney general. And uh, one would wonder, uh, whether in the absence of, of his presence there, uh, you would have had the results that you had uh, in, uh, in those two cases. But there's hope. And uh, we keep pushing as a part of the legal profession uh, to make our profession better, uh, our system uh, better, and to stand up and promote this notion of uh, democracy in our land. But as it relates to police accountability, uh, many of whom were a part of the uh, January 6th uh, uprising, uh, we uh, wonder just uh, uh, what we're going to be able to do to restrain uh, that uh, uh, the, the abuse of power uh, resulting from uh, from these uh, police officers around the country. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank, thank you for that, Irv. Um, uh, so a, a question for you. So you mentioned the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and, and, and that's going nowhere at this point, even though there was a bipartisan group of senators who were working on it. It was, um, you know, there were some of us who were cautiously optimistic uh, that it would advance. It, it has not. And as you noted, it doesn't look like it's going to go anywhere. What are your thoughts about state efforts and the motivation of governments at the state level to have real police reform? Well, I, I'll take North Carolina as, as an example. Uh, the North Carolina General Assembly passed legislation that was basically kind of a cosmetic 
uh, uh, notion uh, to uh, require the reporting of police officers, uh, public exposure of police officers who were convicted of engaging in abusive conduct where they were fired for uh, misusing their uh, power, that there was some uh, ability of departments to trace uh, their uh, history uh, to prevent them from being employed in other uh, agencies. Uh, and of course, it takes a lot to get to that. Uh, but those weren't really structural changes. Uh, they were more directed at some level of transparency. And, uh, but no state has really entered any structural change as it relates to the police. And most of the structural changes actually would come from the, uh, the cities, uh, which control uh, the uh, police departments. Uh, each police department is under the control of the city and the city uh, gives to it, or the city council or town council, gives to those officers the authority to operate on their uh, behalf. And you see absolutely nothing happening uh, at, uh, at that uh, level. And until we get to the level that uh, the city council is uh, doing some uh, appropriate oversight over what is going on within those uh, departments and leaving it to so-called uh, police professionals to uh, run uh, the, uh, uh, the review and accountability efforts with respect to these officers, uh, nothing is going to, uh, to change. And you've had an increase in the number of African-Americans uh, who are police chiefs, uh, but that hasn't significantly altered the uh, behavior of police officers around the country, certainly not here uh, in, uh, in, in North Carolina. And it's uh, kind of uh, puts you in a position that you are uh, reluctant uh, now to attack them because when you attack the department, you are attacking these uh, African-American leaders who are in charge. And uh, so uh, we, we're still at a stalemate. Don or Henry, did either of you have any thoughts you wanted to share? I think Professor Joyner covered it as well as it can be covered. I, I, I will say the one thing, I, like him, I remain hopeful that this that you'll see more convictions of police officers uh, when they when when there are these kind of police involved shootings that end up killing people. But I also can't help but think that uh, that both the convictions of Chauvin and then the convictions of the killers of Ahmed. I'm on Arbery and down in Georgia. I'm not sure that those convictions would have happened without cell phone footage of the killings. And, and when you think about the influence that technology played, it gave people not just on the jury, but people in the community, you know, there's, there's no disputing what happened to those instances. But even in those instances, I think Professor Joyner made this point, the Floyd prosecution did not get off to a great start until the AG's office took over. And uh, initially, if you remember the Arbery prosecution, there was not going to be a prosecution because the district attorney had made the decision that this was self-defense and there was no, uh, nothing that she could prosecute the, the gentleman for. So, and, and it was only after the public outcry forced to change. So, so yes, we're getting convictions. Yes, those things are good, but we also, I think we're fortunate in those instances that there were certain things that were there that just could not be ignored. And uh, without the technology, I'm fearful that we might have seen the same movie that we've seen over and over before. I also, um, you know, think about. Um, I think there's there's still this kind of overarching um, struggle between those who are who want to say that these instances are 
isolated versus this idea of systematic. And I think those are, are very different things, right? You know, and I think that may be part of this challenge of of some of these laws passing and things of that nature, because folks want to say, oh, well, no, these, you know, we're, we're past that systematic um, kind of racism and issues, and these are just bad apples and things of that nature, and don't want to kind of uh, admit to this continued ongoing, um, uh, you know, systematic aspect to it. I also think about within this, this um, you know, conversation about the, um, you know, George Floyd and Derek Chauvin and, and, and all these instances about the Kyle Rittenhouse situation, right? Um, I mean, here you have a, uh, you know, a, a 17 year old you know, essentially running through the streets with the assault white rifle. It ends up killing three folks. And and um, and if you watch the trial, I mean, I, I think it raised, I mean, so many questions about, you know, what was that kind of underlying um, kind of conversation going on that 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 really um, set the tone. You know, it, it kind of took me back to the Trayvon Martin situation and 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 that idea of. Oh well, this is this is you know self defense and, and and things of that nature. Uh, also, you know there there was certainly a whole lot of um, association with Black Lives Matter in this. You know, it was so interesting because I mean the the, the folks that that were victims of the shooting were white individuals, and so you ask yourself, okay, you know, whenever you have situations where there's an association with whites to blacks and, and blacks, I mean it, it it changes the tone, and so I think the Kyle Rittenhouse trial also offers this sense of, um, you know, even within the hope of these verdicts that came otherwise, uh, that as uh, Professor Corbett said, had a lot of um, um, technology surrounded them. I think the, the case of Kyle Rittenhouse um, shows that there's still a lot of things that we're dealing with that we have to, we have to um, you know, a, a test for in terms of this idea of, of some, somehow, um, you know, having equality and equity and all those things. And that's a great segue into our next discussion um, that, you know, that we still have these problems that, that this country has to address. There are those that don't want to, one, admit that we still have these race problems. Uh, there are those that want to just ignore it. But during 2021, we had a formal you know, government recognition of the Tulsa massacre, um, recognition of Juneteenth, but we also have these attacks on critical race theory and the 1619 project. So Henry, can you talk a little bit about the Tulsa massacre and Juneteenth and this now federal recognition that we have, and then also tie that into this incongruous attack on the history, racial history, that we still need to explore and understand in order to fully address these issues? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, it's certainly, again, going back to this idea of, of you know, systematic racism and, and the idea of what this country was built on. Um, during the time of, um, um, you know, the Trump presidency, we saw a whole lot of this conversation about, you know, really what is the what is the foundation of America, right? And, uh, you know, what what ultimately laid the um, the groundwork for where we are today. Um, you know, the 1619 um, project, um, critical race theory, all these things uh, end up being, um, you know, these these kind of, um, uh, you know, cattle calls for uh, for folks to, to, to kind of come together uh, and oppose things that deal with race. And we saw, for example, um, what happened in the Virginia governor's race, right? Um, and, and, and particularly, I mean, obviously, you know, you guys from a legal standpoint, um, you know, know better than anybody what critical race theory is and what it's not. 
yet in this in time, I mean, you don't really have to come with, with the real facts. All you have to do is, is, is kind of gaslight individuals into thinking that it's, 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 it's one thing or another. In addition to the fact that I mean, both 1619 Project and, and, uh, and Critical Race Theory, I mean, dealt with historic fact, right? I mean, this is not, you know, conjecture or, or, some, or something like this. These are facts. Which takes us to, you know, you, you asked a question about the, you know, the we, we just celebrated the, the century uh, anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre, which again is fact. And so, you know, we are in a perilous time whenever we are, um, you know, faced with the idea of real history. And what does that mean as we approach, uh, you know, the next generations and, and you know, are we trying to create um, some narrative as we have many times in the past, that's just not true. That, that creates a, a image of what America is and, and what it has been um, that will you know, inhibit us from moving forward in the future with some real meaningful change. All right, we're going to have to take a quick break, but we are talking about the 2021 year in review. In our next segment, we will look to the year ahead. We have with us here in our Zoom studio, Dr. Henry McCoy, who is an economist and also professor in the NCCU School of Business and Professor Don Corbett, a constitutional law professor at NCCU School of Law. We're going to take a quick break. We will be right back. We hope you stay with us. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I am currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your community spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the 2021 year in review. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, Dr. Henry McCoy, an economist and professor in the NCCU School of Business, and Professor Don Corbett, constitutional law professor at NCCU School of Law. Both have been guests before on the show, and we have no doubt they will continue to be guests and uh, share with us their knowledge and insight. So right before the break, Henry, you were sharing your thoughts about the recognition of the uh, Tulsa massacre, Juneteenth, the attack on critical race theory, the 1619 project. Uh, did you have any uh, final thoughts that you wanted to share? 
Yeah, I, I just say this. I think it, it it speaks to the continual kind of paradox of, of, of time that we live in. On one hand, um, there was, you know, this recognition of Juneteenth as a as a federal holiday and, and things of that nature that that, that came about. Um, which certainly um, for those, um, you know, associated with um, the, the African-American experience, understand that to be the day where African-Americans celebrate the, the freedom, um, you know, as, as well as, you know, Joe Biden going to Tulsa to, to, to speak, uh, you know, about this, uh, you know, the, the terrible race massacre that happened. But again, at the same time, you have the issues, right, even recognizing the, the you know, impact of those original slaves that, that landed, uh, you know, here in America in 1619. And the fact that we do need to look at the systematic aspects of how race uh, affects so many things that, that, that we deal with. And so I think, it, you know, it's one of those kind of things that, um, you know, it, it forces you to ask the question of, um, you know, where do we go from here, right? I mean, when we continue to, to kind of grapple with these um, competing factors of, um, you know, point out to a certain extent, this is what did happen in history, but also not being willing to grapple with the deepest aspects of how that has impacted, impacted the system aspect of it. So, so you know, you know, giving a holiday is one thing, but actually, um, you know, really grappling with uh, real issues that will, um, you know, lay the foundation for the future is something totally different. Great. Don, did you have any thoughts that you wanted to share? I can't add a whole lot to what Professor McCoy has already said. It's 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 like only only in a, you know only in America can we have a federal holiday called Juneteenth. But then when we have kids who ask their teachers why we're not coming to school, some of those teachers might not be able to tell them because of the state legislation that's been passed in response to uh, the boogeyman of critical race theory. So we you give a performative holiday, but then as Professor McCoy said, you don't do a deeper dive into why we had the holiday and why it was necessary. And I think that perfectly summarizes uh, so much of the difficulty that we have with talking about race even today in our country. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. So you know we've covered you know some important topics related to or that we saw in 2021. Of course, there are more things that we can definitely talk about, but we did wanna take some time and look to the year ahead. So I'm sure I am not alone in thinking that when we, in in 2020, um, in 2020, when the pandemic uh, occurred and you know we all had to kind of lock down, if someone had asked me at that time, if we would be beyond the pandemic uh, in 2022, I would have said, absolutely. I, I just, you know, no doubt about it in my mind. Well, of course, I am incredibly surprised. I'm sure there are other people as well. But this is continuing to um, be a, a major problem, not just in the United States, but of course, across the world. And the, the pandemic and the issues have shown a light on and exacerbated issues that we have seen within the Black community. So when we're thinking about health, when we're thinking about education, when we're thinking about economics. And Henry wanted to get your thoughts initially on how the continuing pandemic has impacted the Black community. And what do you think going forward we need to focus on and and what do we need to do to make sure that we mitigate these effects? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, alone, I think so many of us thought that we would be past this um, now, but, but you know, this, this um, 
this ongoing, these ongoing variants and things of that nature uh, certainly uh, gives us an understanding of um, kind of the power of um, nature, right? And, uh, and and how that works. You know, they they say to a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? I'm I'm a economist. I'm a I'm a former banker. Uh, I'm an economic developer. Uh, I think we have to continue to think about this idea of the wealth gap and uh, and, and what that means, because certainly a part of what as you mentioned, the pandemic has exacerbated is um, these issues that that are centered around race, and and I think one of those um, you know major issues evolves around this idea of, of, of wealth and, and resources, and you know who gets who gets the the, the health treatments, right? Um, you know uh, who who can sustain the idea of um, of, of working from home? Uh, who can? I mean, all these kind of things that that are you know so tied to the economic conditions of the community. I think certainly, as we look at the the, the ongoing challenges that, that we face, um, I mean, we have a, a very different economy in a lot of ways, right? We've had the Great Recession, where folks are are are, are, are leaving jobs and not necessarily leaving the workforce, but now uh, with the advent of, of things like Zoom and virtual worlds and things like that, um, now uh, folks can leave a job in, in the place they live and, and and join a firm across the world, across the United States, without ever picking up and moving the family. And so I, I think that from the standpoint of the black community, um, you know, is is going to be more, you know, even more important that we really, um, you know, begin to 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 take steps to to close these gaps because, you know, what we saw early in the pandemic was um, because everybody, this is my own theory, because everybody was sitting at home, we were all watching TV, all kind of inside. We saw these things like the Derek Chauvin, you know, George Floyd situation in real time, and 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 had a chance to kind of react. We now, even within the midst of the pandemic, we're normalizing a certain aspect of it, right? I mean, and so it's getting kind of back to normal. So folks are in their, their own world. And we're starting to see um, those commitments that were made to the Black community kind of kind of down the vine, right? I mean, corporations made $50 billion worth of commitments to the community, but probably, you know, at best, a couple of hundred million dollars have made their way into some kind of um, work. And a lot of that is, is, is into work that I would say is um, you know feel connect to the status quo per se versus versus more innovative work, and so I think that's in my mind is going to be critically important because as the economy shifts and as um, you know these things happen, um, you know where will Black folks um, sit um, when it comes to wealth and and the, the, the things that that wealth allows us to um, to to experience and to partake in. Yeah, and I think the point that you have made so um, so well about the resources and how that ties into all of these areas. So what type of medical uh, treatments are available to you? I mean, that comes down to resources, the education. Um, you know, do the children who are having to take online classes, do they have access to the computers within their homes? Uh, are there parents who are able to help them with their um, with their schoolwork. And so we see a health gap widening, we see the education gap widening, as you noted, the wealth gap widening, and that just feeds into all of these other areas. Um, Don, did you have any thoughts that you wanted to share? I mean, it's, I mean, I, again, I can't really add a whole lot to what's already been said. I, I, I just remember reading a couple of times that like the wealth gap that, doc, uh, that Dr. McCoy spoke to increased by like a, like a, the, the top 1% saw their wealth increase by like 120% during the time of the pandemic, whereas the, the 
the bottom half of the country saw their resources dwindle even more. We have people walking off jobs. I mean, that's even if you even if you take the issue of race out of the equation, which is really impossible to do, that's not sustainable over over a long term. And and sometimes when you think about the unrest that we saw on January sixth, some of that unrest I, I know is tied to people having real serious economic insecurity about what their what their life is going to look like in the next three to five years, and and at the rate that we're going, it's just I don't know what it results in, but it's not sustainable. It's just not sustainable. So hopefully we get our arms wrapped around COVID and 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 can kind of revert to where we were a few years ago. Maybe that's not possible, but but certainly there's room to be concerned on a bunch of different levels. All right, so so we've got a little bit of time left and we wanna talk about uh, the Supreme Court and we've, we've talked about the Supreme Court before on this show. We will no doubt have additional episodes dedicated especially to that, but we did want to give our audience a preview of some key cases that will be decided by the court this year. And so we've got cases surrounding abortion, we've got cases surrounding the Second Amendment. And so Don, can you give us your thoughts on um, the Supreme Court upcoming or impending cases, particularly as it relates to these two issues? Sure, sure. So I'll I'll, I'll try to summarize as quickly as I can. Uh, We've got two major cases that have really already been argued before the court. Uh, They were argued back during uh, the late fall. And the first one that people I'm sure have heard most about concerns a Mississippi law that makes it illegal to uh, have an abortion after the 15th week of pregnancy. Uh, Long story short, the law is blatantly unconstitutional. Uh, The Supreme Court has already said that the constitution has an inherent right to privacy it extends to a woman's decision as to whether to terminate a pregnancy or not. And the key touchstone period is what's called fetal viability. So that basically means that when the fetus is capable of living outside of the womb, then that's when states have much more regula- much more ability to regulate whether abortions can occur. But they're not supposed to pass any laws uh, that will prohibit abortion until that point of fetal, vi- fetal viability. Now, they can still pass laws as long as those laws don't provide what's called an undue burden to a woman's right to choose. So Mississippi is on the wrong side of this. Fetal viability is usually around 22 to 24 weeks, and Mississippi is about you know, a month, two months ahead of that. Uh, the court took the case, and the tone and the tenor of the arguments really strongly suggest that Roe is pretty much over. And it's just a matter of how over it's going to be. Uh, They could say that 15 weeks is constitutional and the viability is kind of an arbitrary line that we don't need. But if that's true, then what's to stop other states from going to 10 weeks or going to eight weeks or going to six weeks? So so that would be kind of a, a structural overruling of Roe. And then they could also just come right out and say that Roe was wrongly decided and it would eliminate the federal right to terminate a pregnancy, although it would still be available in states where those state legislatures have made it legal. So it would become largely a regional right. And I think you can rest assured that most states in the South, many states in the Midwest would ban abortion completely. And this is likely to have a very disproportionate effect on poor women and women of color because they may not have the resources to get the states where it's legal. So I think it's going to happen. It's just a matter of what language the court uses in making it happen. 
Uh, the other case that you referenced <clears throat> is a case out of New York. With based, New York has a law that basically requires you to apply for a permit if you want to carry a concealed weapon. So you have to show a special need to be able to, to have a concealed weapon before you can be granted the permit. So uh, the people who challenged this law were denied the license, and they think that that license denial violates their right to bear arms under the Second Amendment. So the court has said in the past that you do have a constitutional right to possess a handgun in your home for the right of self-defense, but they haven't really said a whole lot after that. So this case gives the court the ability to expand Second Amendment rights considerably, which would make it much more difficult for state and local governments to regulate gun possession. And when you think about how our nation is kind of awash in gun violence, this is this is a disconcerting um, uh, thought process. But I do believe that it's it's more likely to happen. And again, it's just a matter of how deeply or how how wide they're going to go with this particular right. So so both of these cases kind of mark a culmination of a long battle fought by conservative interests. Uh, and these are folks that I think represent people who think they've kind of lost the popular culture wars, whether it's abortion or gay marriage or race relations. And they've sought to use the courts to maybe slow down and perhaps reverse some of these societal changes. So this has really been going on for maybe 30, 40 years, if not longer. And, and the timing and these events dictated that Trump got to appoint three justices to the court. Uh, those justices were handpicked to deliver on what they're about to deliver on. So again, it's I don't think it's a matter of, of if, but just a matter of how. Uh, those decisions will probably come down, uh, you know, late May, early June, uh, when the court's near. The court usually saves its opinion, its most important opinions for later in the term. So we'll just have to see what all this looks like, but it, it does not look good from my side of the fence. Mm -hmm. And and we will absolutely have a show focusing on the Supreme Court's opinions in June or July. So we'll have you back so we'll be able to dissect those opinions. Um, and your point about Trump having appointed three justices, and of course, these cases will come down during an election year, at least the midterm elections. And we just have a few minutes left, but Irv, I wanted to just get your quick thoughts on um, how do you think these issues may play when it comes to the midterm elections and any other thoughts that you wanna share about um, the, the 2022 elections that will be taking place in November? Uh, these uh, elections are very uh, important. Uh, people need to be actively involved in it, uh, in them, and uh, they will have significant meaning going forward. Uh, these uh, cases will be lifted up as a way to uh, galvanize uh, both sides of the aisle. And uh, it depends on which side of the aisle uh, shows up at home that's going to determine what is going to happen in the over the next 10 years. All right. Well, we are unfortunately out of time, but we'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Henry McCoy, economist and professor at the NCCU School of Business, Professor Don Corbett, constitutional law expert at the NCCU School of Law. And as always, we'd like to thank you for spending your Sunday evening with us and listening to the Legal Eagle Review. If you have any questions or comments, or if there's a topic you'd like for us to cover, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. 
And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.